Twitter. I'm Isaac Fitzgerald. He is Saeed Jones. It is the worst day of the year on the internet. (laughs) And you are watching AM to DM. Here's a word on April Fool's from Christina Grace. Trust no one today, not even yourself. Existence is a prank. The very body you inhabit is a trick. Lying (laughs) is not joking. It's not a joke to be like, oh, your shoe's untied. April Fool's, it's not. That's what a child would do. It's bad. I, I fucking hate April Fool's Day. He fucking hates it. I realize I don't think I feel as passionately about it as, mm. as you do. I don't like it. I don't like it. Yeah, uh, you I, hate surprises. I don't like being surprised. I'm terrified of being surprised. Okay, so I, our producers, you were out um, during this meeting last week, but they were like, maybe we should prank Isaac. Do you think he'll like it? And I was like, I don't think that's... A good idea. I really appreciate that you said something. You're, you're cracking your Yeah, they would have been in some deep <laughs> shit. You, man, I get jumpy. I'm, you know me. I'm yeah. a paranoid person already as it is. Yeah. So you start, like, adding, like, pranks are funny. That's the other thing, pranks. That's like, oh, hey, yeah. I want to show you I like you by, like, drenching you in a... Po- a, pot, a bunch of water. I'm sorry. I get very, very I saw um, Lucas Tomes earlier this morning tweeted, Twitter seems to be taking April Fool's very personally, and I think 75% of that energy is coming from this person. I'm just saying let's <laughs> all not be jackasses today. Apex Twink put it this way. April Fool's is impossible now. I just woke up to Elon Musk drops rap single about Harambe, and Mussolini's granddaughter is beefing with Jim Carrey on Twitter, and neither of them were jokes. That's okay. another point. Like, 2019... Crazy. The news alone is is wild. And I listen, that Jim Carrey Mussolini, I had to look it up because I was like, there's just no way. Sure enough, they've been feuding. I, crazy. We live in a time of fools. Every day, the fool, ah, mm, mm, makes me mad. <laughs> I'm just going to move on before you start <laughs> screaming. Uh, let's take it to the timeline. Do you hate April Fool's Day? Do you love it? Um, do you have a memory of a prank that leaves you seething with anger? Or can you just help us understand why some people like it and why some people don't like it? Is this a psychological thing? Anyway, let us know using the hashtag don't do it. Yeah, using don't the hashtag it. AM to don't want it. out yourself for being cheesy. <laughs> All right, well, here's a tweet from BuzzFeed News. Joe Biden has denied acting inappropriately after Democratic politician Lucy Flores said he smelled her hair and kissed the back of her head. Azine Gureshi tweeted, as of Sunday morning, Lucy Flores told BuzzFeed News that neither Joe Biden nor anyone from his team had contacted her to address the allegations she has raised. BuzzFeed News reporter Azine Gureshi joins us now. Azine, good morning. Hi, guys. Hi. All right, so to be clear, what exactly did Lucy Flores say happened between her and Joe Biden in 2014? Sure. So um, in November 2014, Lucy Flores was campaigning to be lieutenant governor in Nevada, um, and uh, Joe Biden was then vice president, decided to come out to sort of help boost voter turnout, came to one of her rallies, um, and she was standing on the side of the stage um, preparing to, to go onto the stage and speak and felt someone come behind her, um, put his arms on her, lean in, smell her hair, and then kiss the back of her head. And it was, of course, the vice president, Joe Biden. Um, and she just, she said that, you know, at the time she felt very powerless. She felt very uncomfortable. It didn't need to be necessarily sexual to, to do those things, um, but that she was really ashamed about it. She carried it with her for years until last Friday when she wrote this first-person essay for New York Magazine um, describing the incident. Right. Um, just, yeah, and I think that's such a good point that you highlighted, that regardless if it was sexual or not, it made her uncomfortable, and it's not a professional way to engage your colleagues. Um, what has Joe Biden said in response to this? Sure. So at first, um, his one of his 
team members, one of his PR people responded on Saturday, I believe, um, with a pretty dismissive um, statement in response. Um, the next day on Sunday, Joe Biden put out a, a statement that was sort of like, you know, he didn't necessarily remember this particular incident. He didn't address any of the details of the incident. What he did say was that, you know, over the course of his career, he has given handshakes and given kisses and, and or not kisses, he said signs of affection. Um, and that if those were ever misinterpreted, essentially, that, that, um, that he's sorry, but that his intention was never to make anyone uncomfortable. So it was sort of like a give him an inch. Right. He, he, was, he was definitely defending himself. Um, he was not acknowledging this incident in particular. Um, and he was saying that, you know, he never intended to make anyone feel bad. But if they did, um, that, you know, he's, he's listening and that men should listen, which is a big part of um, what Biden has, you know, one of the things he's, he's gotten a lot of credit for in his career is that he has emerged as sort of this champion of women. Um, you know, when he was vice president, he was um, he championed ca the campaign against campus sexual assault um, back in 1994. He helped write the Violence Against Women Act. Um, you know, this is something that he really that is, I think, central to um, his potential campaign. But I think it's also going to get him into trouble because, again, as he said in his statement, these signs of affection have come up over and over and over again through the course of his career. Um, there are photos and videos of him, like he's just very handsy, and um, you know, again, he can he can always make the claim that it's it's it was not his intention to make anyone feel uncomfortable, but it has come up enough times that I think now it's it's going to become more of an issue, right. more of an issue. Okay, so that's how Biden responded to what has the rest of the response to this story been? Like you said, there was a lot of photos and videos being shared over the weekend. What else have we heard? Um, so the Democratic candidates have really come forward saying that they stand with Lucy, Tor Lucy Flores, um, that uh, they believe her. And, you know, that some of them were asked whether, you know, they think that this will affect his presidential run. And they, they've stayed pretty safe and said, you know, that's up to him. Um, if he does decide to run, it's with the American people to decide, you know, how they feel. Okay, we will leave it there for now. Thanks for joining us this morning, Azeen. Thanks. All right, heartbreaking news out of LA yesterday. Kelly Baum tweeted, imagine minding your own business, making real life movements, being a business owner, a wonderful husband to your kids and beautiful wife, then your life gets taken away from you with six shots. RIP Nipsey, the culture lost a real king. Writer and activist George M. Johnson joins us now. Um, good morning, George. Good morning. Okay, so this story understandably has hit a lot of people hard. I've seen a lot of broken hearts um, on the timeline. Um, for people who were just catching up with this story, who was Nipsey and what happened yesterday? So Nipsey uh, Hussle is a pretty well-known rapper, a Grammy-nominated rapper, L.A.-based, uh, grew up in the, um, you know, as you would say, like the hoods of L.A., um, around gang culture, uh, but was someone who also was teaching people how to like reinvest in black community, using his money to uh, help rebuild his community and help try to pull uh, people from that same community that he grew up in um, out of that out of poverty and um, out of that culture. So it just kind of brought a lot of heartbreak amongst many groups across uh, the black community, as well as a lot of disdain uh, because there are always two sides to, I guess, every uh, hero, right? Absolutely. Do we, just to, just to stay with the case for one more moment, do the yes. LAPD, do they have any suspects? Do we have any more clarity this morning on what happened yesterday afternoon? 
at this time, there haven't there hasn't been any other reports outside of the fact that they think that it may have been uh, gang related. Uh, but, you know, there have been a lot of conspiracy theories uh, on Twitter, unfortunately. Um, and so I think a lot of the work of Twitter uh, justice has been debunking some of the government uh, interference myths or the Dr. CB myths. Uh, but the only, I guess, credible reports that have come out is that it may have been gang related. All right, let's talk a little bit. You touched on it right there. This is a tweet from 1L, kind of the many ways in which he was affecting the community. Nipsey built a STEM center for young people and a co-working space for underrepresented groups in the hood. He said he was building the bridge between Silicon Valley and the inner city. If that's not a legend, I don't know what is. So George, what other causes were important to the rapper? Um, he was very invested uh, in black children and the images that black children uh, got to see. And uh, one of his main things was like how black people, black children and how media portrays us. Uh, he's done a lot of work, uh, even with uh, one of my friends, Fred Joseph, who um, did the Black Panther Challenge. He was also like integral uh, when Fred was doing that behind the scenes to make sure that kids got to the movie theaters. Uh, that was basically his whole thing was uh, reinvestment in Black community and teaching other uh, Black people how they could reinvest in their own communities. Right. Um, George, I wanted to make space for this tweet for you because you brought such nuance to this conversation. You tweeted, folks struggle with fighting for people who may never fight for them. The wounds are deep. I want our community to grow out of homophobia, misogyny, and every other thing that holds us back. I hate seeing Black death, period. I just want healing and praying hard for us all. Um, and this is just so thoughtful. Um, you know, as I understand it, Nipsey was not always great on talking about LGBT issues, for example. And so while right. we grieve him, we want to make space for this too. So can you talk about how we engage this in a thoughtful way? Um, I think one of the statements I often say is um, it's hard being like an activist who fights for people who may never fight for me. Uh, I think that's how a lot of people feel anytime someone who may have done great things in Black community uh, but also has another side where they have harmed people or their words, I'll say, because I don't think he physically has ever done that. But his words um, may have alluded to the harming and the systems that harm queer people. Um, he, he also has some very interesting views around colorism and around black women, too. And so a lot of times when these situations happen, uh, you'll see the timeline kind of divide. And this isn't the first time we've been here. We were here when Erica Garner passed away. Um, when Sandra Bland passed away, when XXX passed away, uh, the timeline gets divided because there's this expectation of uh, everybody should show respect for the dead. And it's like, yeah, you show respect for the dead, but you also have to be able to critique them um, in their death, especially because a lot of times space isn't given to critique them in life. Uh, I think what a lot of people want is for people to be able to grow. I see people using the example around Jay-Z, who, you know, 15 years ago was, you know, using homophobic statements to now where he's receiving a GLAAD award. Uh, so I do think that on both sides, yes, we have to be able to allow people to mourn what they're feeling, uh, especially because he was doing things for certain parts of the Black community. But I think you also have to listen to the critiques and the views from the other side of the community that felt that they were erased from his path to liberation. And somehow we all have to find a way to meet in the middle uh, to at least have a nuanced conversation around it. Right. And to have a full, thorough conversation. George, thank Absolutely. you so much for bringing your thoughts on the show this morning. Thank you for having me. 
Thank you so much. Um, well, we've got another great show for you guys this morning. Matthew Gray Goobler is here. Plus, I'll be talking with Damon Young from Very Smart Brothers. I'm so excited to talk to him. But up next, it's Fire Tweets. Welcome back. Okay, so we were asking people about, like, are there any pranks that, you know, went well or whatever? I know, I know. Um, but we have a really funny one here. From, well, I think it's funny. From Rebecca. Rebecca tweeted, in high school, my choir teacher pranked our school nurse. This is going to make Isaac so angry. Uh, my choir teacher pranked our school nurse by sending everyone in the class to her office one by one to ask for a single Band-Aid. When it was my time to go, she looked me dead in the eye and said, are you fucking kidding me? <laughs> <laughs> Funny. I, that's, <laughs> mm, yeah, but uh, mm, okay. the whole thing. I'm sorry. It just makes me very, very mad. <laughs> Let's get into these fire. Let's do it. All right. Oh, it comes with. <laughs> 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 oh my God! Why does every website I visit want to send me notifications? Why is this a thing now? Why the hell would I want a notification for your dumb website? Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. I just feel like the notification thing has upped. Yep. yep you know yep, what yep, I mean? Yep, yep. Like the bar was lowered, or I mean, I wouldn't know nothing about it. Because you know I've got like no notifications. Oh really? Like, oh absolutely. I for news? Yeah, I really try to have it because I feel like it's so distracting throughout That's the true. day. When you just see something, mm-hmm. I'll hear about it. You know, That's I true. will go and look yeah. for it. But whenever I sign up for an app or anything, I'm always making sure that my notifications are off because otherwise I feel like I'm constantly distracted. It's real out here. Kim B detweeted, "Is Fred? I'm sorry. If Fred Flintstone uses his feet to power his automobile, then why doesn't he just walk to work? He's basically just carrying his car everywhere, which is a very good point when you think about it." Kim, if you don't start looking for logical flaws in the Flintstones, you got a long way ahead of you. You think it's the woolly mammoth helping you wash the dishes? What do you? I'm just saying, it's a good point. I mean, wasn't it like to get them some movement, then you can get to the hill? Oh, you think you can go down the hill? Who's pushing it up? Oh my god. Okay, this (laughs) next tweet comes from (laughs) Z-Way. Do you ever go to the doctor and think, wow, this was a waste of $17,000? To which I say, what a steal. You have good insurance, bro. Oh, no. Oh, that's going to make me laugh, but also cry. (laughs) In this economy? That's not April Fool's Day. The healthcare system is broken. Jay, you tweeted, unsaved numbers have the most attitude. Like, chill, whatever your name is. Yo. Isn't that real? Man. Isn't that real? What the fuck is up with us getting all these phone calls from the unsaved numbers? Isn't it real? I hate this. I also don't save a lot of names in my phone, though. That's really funny. I, I have a lot of people where I get I a text, and then I have to scroll up to try and figure out who it is. <laughs> Every day is a mystery when you live an unorganized life. We're learning a lot about Isaac this morning, That's aren't we? That's true. All right, this next tweet of the day, and I'm, I'm so excited, is from Van Newkirk and his toddler, Ben, who we fucking stand this child, all <laughs> yes. right? Van tweeted, Ben tried... Wait, oh, I should hit it. Good Lord. That was the April prank. <laughs> ben tried honeydew for the first time today and spit it back out and slammed the rest back in the bowl and then covered it with a napkin so he wouldn't have to see it. Truly, my son. Let us talk about the bullshit that is honeydew melon. What a waste of time. Okay, so here's the thing. I'm not trying to have a debate. And maybe it's an age thing, because I've always hated honeydew melon. I always hate, when you get a fruit salad and it's all melon, that is a crime against humanity. Okay. Just the other day, I sure did try a little bit of honeydew melon. No. It's and disgusting. I found it kind of delicious. 
Maybe it's like maybe it's like as you age, your taste buds change. I was like, oh, this isn't as bad as I remember. I, this is that's some bullshit. <laughs> but the kid is great. Like seriously, all the tweets oh, about God. Ben are just hilarious. We stand that child. Oh, oh my God! Oh my God! Look at him. Okay. All right, well, listen. Coming up, I'm talking to actor Matthew Gray Goobler. But up next, we're going live from the district. Honeydew is the April Fool's Day of. Welcome back, we're going live from the district. Here's a tweet from the New York Times. President Trump's plan to cut off aid to three Central American countries for failing to stop the flow of migrants toward the US turns American policy in the region on its head. Okay, so listen. We cover dumbass news out of this White House every day, but this is particularly dumb. Also, if you were watching Fox News over the weekend, you might have thought that they were three Mexican countries, which uh, that was a fun, that was a fun little one. You fucking dummies. Anyway, joining us now to talk about this story is BuzzFeed News Capitol Hill reporter Paul McLeod. Paul, good morning. Hey, good morning. How many Mexicos are there? I think it's six or seven, but I haven't. There's North Mexico next to Canada. There's East Mexico, which is sort of in the Atlantic. But I, I, I get them mixed up. <laughs> okay, let's actually be for real for a second. Okay, so why is President Trump planning to cut off aid to Central American countries now? Like, how is this supposed to make anything better? Well, <laughs> that's a good question. <laughs> I'm not sure if it is supposed to make anything better. I think it's supposed to be purely a punitive action. I mean, this is Donald Trump essentially saying to the world, uh, well, he's obviously been unable to get as much of his wall built as he had hoped. Uh, he's had a nightmare in terms of the legalities of trying to prevent refugee claimants from coming over the border. We've seen the entire crisis that popped up with uh, holding these children and these facilities that looked an awful lot like jail. And so now he's turning to trying to make the Mexican countries uh, make it their problem to essentially say, look, I am going to punish you financially unless you step in and you stop these people from coming over the border, which, as a, just on a totally personal note, is a little bit funny to me as a Canadian, considering there's been tens of thousands of people who are fleeing north over the Canadian border, the U.S.-Canada border, and Canada's asked the United States to do the exact same thing. Can you guys, like, help us out here? And they've completely refused. Wait, really? It's I like, did not know this. That is, that yeah. is wild. That oh, is yeah. a little <laughs> irony there. Yeah. Let me ask, which countries are being targeted? Which right. three countries? And, and what was the aid funding that the Trump administration is cutting off? Yeah, Honduras, Guatemala, uh, uh, Mexico... Um, it's hundreds of millions of dollars of funding involved. Now, this is funding that really ramped up over the Obama, uh, during the Obama administration because this, this influx of uh, asylum seekers that started under Obama, their response was the exact opposite. It was to, okay, to address the core issues of, of poverty, of the situations that are causing people to flee their homes and try to search for somewhere better to live. So, I mean, we're talking a variety of aid programs that's working with local governments um, to build up the infrastructure of these communities. It's working with aid groups who are on the ground there. It's even, I mean, things that are very Republican priorities, like partnerships with anti-human uh, trafficking, anti-drug trafficking, you know, basically police organizations. That's all tied into this funding. Okay, and just real quick, it was also El Salvador. Uh, we want to make sure to mention that country as well. well oh, I'm sorry. That's all right. How do you sleep at it's night? It's Monday, buddy. It's Monday. Here's a tweet from Molly Hensley Clancy. Beto O'Rourke launched his presidential campaign with the border city of El Paso as a backdrop and as a contrast to Trump on how Beto is using his hometown to make an argument for himself in a crowded presidential field. Now, Paul, this tweet kind of confused me because uh -huh. I thought 
Beto O'Rourke had already announced. People keep like re-re-announcing. Yeah, you have one for every Mexican country. That's the traditional convention of the Democratic Party. No, it's just, I mean, look, just ring every bit of publicity you can to get out of it, right? So you've got the Vanity Fair cover, now you've got the uh, on-the-ground launch. And uh, it's interesting. I mean, it, it really ties into exactly what Trump was doing this uh, weekend, only in the, obviously, the very opposite end of that spectrum of better work uh, in his hometown, which is a very, obviously, like, multinational place. Um, one of the most, like, bilingual multinational places in America. And making that sort of his signature brand now. I'm going to be the person of compassion, of, of reaching out to people of all nationalities. and that America is a place that has a like, long, proud history of taking in people who are in need. Obviously, that's direct contrast to what President Trump has made his image about. Um, I wanted to ask, and, and, and this is a somewhat serious question, is there a point at which people ha- like have to stop announcing their money for pre- <laughs> Like, is like, you know, like, is there like some kind of official deadline? It just feels like it's going on forever. <laughs> well, I mean, I guess you kind of have to, you've you got to get in before the primaries start. So there's that. And then basically you have the whole election cycle and then three or four days after we have a new election, then we'll start announcing for the next election in 2024. <laughs> so it's all part of the cycle. Oh, it's all part of the cycle. It's all part of the cycle. One of the part of the cycle, though, is people are announcing money. I saw uh, Pete Buttigieg oh, yeah. had a tweet going around, raised $7 million. In he, the got he got money. He got money. Let me ask, though, wh- wh- where are we at with finances? How are the 2020 candidates looking? Let, let's put one caveat up close, uh, up top, that candidates and campaigns are constantly hyping up how much money they are raising. I mean, they want to be seen as a frontrunner. They want to be seen as the campaign that has all of the momentum behind them. That said, we have seen some pretty remarkable fundraising totals. I mean, obviously, uh, you know, we saw the Bernie Sanders campaign up top, Beto O'Rourke, both raising... Uh, should look this up, but something like $6 million in 24 hours, somewhere around there, don't quote me. But, I mean, really impressive fundraising totals now. And even we're even seeing some of these sort of <laughs> down-ballot kind of candidates, people who were not seen as front-runners, uh, still get, pulling in really impressive sums of money, which is a sign of there's a, a very active anti-Trump movement. I mean, there's a lot of money that's going to be spent thrown behind Democratic candidates to take down Trump in 2020. All right. Well, we will see what other 50 people decide they are also running to soon. Um, Well, here's a tweet from Alex Moe of NBC News. Um, The House Judiciary Committee will vote Wednesday morning to authorize several subpoenas, including for special counsel Robert Mueller's full and complete report, its underlying evidence, and related matters. Okay, so we are now officially a week since Barr's four-letter summary, whatever. Is this the first step towards the report becoming released to the public? Well, potentially. So now we've got two tracks here, right? You've got uh, Barr, who is going to be doing his own redacting and is going to be releasing his version of the report in mid-April. And now you've got the Democrats who are pursuing getting the full report, and not just the full report, but underlying evidence and documentation, and Lord knows what else, that went into the making of that report. And this is going to be a bit dicey. There's going to have to be some political negotiating here. Now, basically, Democrats can give themselves leverage by doing this, by having the subpoena, to say, look, you need to be really late on the redactions or we're going to put out everything. Then the flip side of that is if the Democrats get particularly aggressive and they do get a copy of the unredacted report and get out too much information, you know, Republicans will be accusing them of uh, putting sources at risk, of uh, harming the intelligence community, all of that kind of stuff. 
The bottom line here is Democrats want to see as much as they can because they expect this to be a goldmine, a total treasure trove of opposition research opportunities. It's all looking into the shady dealings of anyone surrounding the president. So if there's something that, let's say, uh, indicts some high-level Republican person, but it's not really directly related to the core of the Mueller report, it just happened to be turned up, Uh, maybe William Barr says, well, this is beside the point, this is outside the scope, I'm going to redact that. Democrats, as you can imagine, are going to want to seize on it and go in the opposite direction. So this is the tug of war we're going to have over the next few weeks. Wow. Um, and I didn't realize there's a scenario in which there are two different versions of the report out here. Oh my gosh. Okay. Well, Paul, as always, thanks for joining us this morning. All right. Great talking with you. Cheers. All right. I'm going to say this real quick. Okay. Paul was one of my, he was on my list of if any wildness, any April That's Fool's true. foolishness was going to happen today. He does like some tomfoolery. He does. Interesting that you'd say Tom Foolery, Tom Brady, Patriots. Anyways, I'm just saying I'm glad we got through that without him doing anything. He might come back. All right, up next, I'm talking with Jackson McHenry about my favorite show that I don't know if anyone else is watching yet, but I love Santa Clarita Diet. Season three is here. I'm just watching it alone quite happily. Anyway, stay tuned. <laughs> you want to you preach. You want to get other people invested. I'm a loner. It's cool. <laughs> Here's a tweet from Honey. Santa Clarita Diet Season 3 is on Netflix. This is not a drill. I didn't see your tweet, so I was very surprised to realize it was on my Netflix queue. Uh, Jackson McHenry, staff writer at Vulture, joins me now to talk about my favorite show about suburban zombies. How are you doing? Good. I'm always excited to talk about Santa Clarita Diet since there are about five of us who are really dedicated to it. Listen, so. friend, we need to, let's actually start a group DM so we can band <laughs> together. I feel so lonely. Um, okay, so the season three just um, came out. Do you think it lived up to fans' expectations? Um, yeah, I, I really loved it. It's, it's a sort of crazy dark comedy. I mean, the whole premise is Drew Barrymore becomes a zombie and she and her husband, Timothy Oliphant, have to decide basically who they kill ethically in order for her to survive and get into all sorts of weird, crazy shenanigans. Um, but it's mostly just fun watching the two of them do crazy, wild things together, like try to hunt down Nazis or men's rights activists or figure out you know, who it might be ethical to eat and everything while living in a California suburb. Thank you. Um, so, yeah, I had a great time watching it. Absolutely. Listen, Twitter, if you're not watching this show, this is very pertinent to the timeline's interest. At the very least, you should watch this show because Drew Barrymore plays a zombie who makes a point of killing Nazis. <laughs> like, this is great. <laughs> we stand. It's great. There's a line in the premiere where they're like, well, thankfully, there are more of them than ever. So there, there you know, they have a lot to eat. Um, Absolutely. But it, it does get into sort of, it's, it's a crazy, silly comedy, but it gets into questions of like, well, is it ever right to, to do things for your marriage to keep together that will drive you to this kind of insanity? Or there's a whole question in the third season about should she bite him so he's also immortal? Or and do they want to live together forever? It, uh, along with just kind of, you know, sitcom plot lines. So, it's a good combination. I love it. Well, let's talk about our outrage. Rona tweeted this. There is a severe lack of hype over Netflix's Santa Clarita Diet. Uh, the show is a great comedy mixing family sitcom and zombie movies together. Legit, everyone needs to get on board with this show. I agree. Um, is it, I mean, why, why don't you think more people are watching it? Why is this happening? <laughs> um, it really feels like Netflix hasn't promoted it very much, um, which, is, which is really striking, given that, you know, people know who Drew Barrymore are generally. Um, uh, and, and there's a sense that they haven't been booked on late night shows. There's not a lot of kind of buzz around it. And it feels like it may have been that, that Netflix, when it was first starting out and building out a lot of shows, they would hire a lot of A-list stars and spend a ton of money. And it may be that they sort of have this show and it's not delivering in whatever way they want it to. 
and they're sort of putting the third season out there and, and maybe kind of quietly burning it off. I hope not because I, I really want to see more. It ends on a cliffhanger. But um, it, it does seem like it's kind of stark that there's just not, not a lot of support from it. Justice for these zombies. Well, here's a tweet from Hannah. Uh, Timothy Oliphant, uh, continuing to move seamlessly from dad to daddy at any given moment. No pun intended. Um, and I have to agree with you, Hannah. So this is why we are making him our honorary man crush Monday. I love him so much. Oh, um, he's so good. He's so good and cute and charming. Do you have a favorite Joel moment on the show? Um, I got, it's, it's hard. Anytime he gets especially flustered, he, for someone who is, incredibly handsome and has perfect hair and everything. He's really good at playing a dork, um, which is which is kind of remarkable, like stealing from the rest of us dorks of the world. But there's lots of really charming moments where, you know, Sheila, his wife, Drew Barrymore, will be like talking about how um, someone looks really great and she really wants to eat them and he'll just be befuddled and confused and, and plays it really well. So I, I appreciate that. Yeah, it's so funny. Sometimes I wonder if there's this slight tone where this, this is like a metaphor for her sexual prowessness and him trying mm-hmm. to figure out as a husband if he should support her. But that's a conversation for another day. <laughs> Jackson, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Oh, man, I, I love the show and I will continue to yell about it. Well, up next, Isaac is talking with one of the stars of Criminal Minds, Matthew Gray Goobler. Welcome back. I am so excited to be joined by Matthew Gray Goobler. You know him as Dr. Spencer Reed on Criminal Minds, and now he has a new children's book, and if you could rise and join me, Rumpel Buttercup, a story of bananas, belonging, and being yourself. Uh, Rumpel Buttercup, I can't believe you came on the show today. I have some really bad news, Isaac. Oh, what's the bad news? Matthew could not be here today. Oh, he couldn't make it? No, he's stuck in a subway. <laughs> but he sent me. <laughs> do, you nice. ta- do you take, oh, let's hug. Do you take cars? You're not a subway guy? I only take the subway. Hey, hey. April Fools! Oh, you did I'm it. Here. It's you really got me. it. What's up, man? I'm fucking gonna pass out. This is beautiful. Did you make that yourself? You know, I designed it myself. A magical elf named Linda helped to realize the functionality of uh-huh, it. Uh-huh. But this is its maiden voyage. It's and you're the first to, you're the first to meet. Seven foot tall Rumpel. We're very, we're very happy. Uh, really appreciate it. Tell me a little bit about this character. Um, well. He lives underground okay. in a sewer. Uh-huh. That's why he takes the subway a lot. <laughs> and he, uh, you know, he feels a little bit weird. He kind of hides out from the above ground. He's a best friend made of trash named Candy Corn Carl. <laughs> and together they go some on, on some adventures and uh-huh. sort of learn the magic of uh, being themselves. Of being themselves yeah. and, and maybe taking a little bit of pride. This is obviously a stretch from uh, Criminal Mind, you know? Like, yeah. <laughs> it's like you, you profile murderers. Sort of the polar opposite. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. What made you want to write a children's book, an illustrated children's book? You know, it's funny, I, I guess, I, didn't, I never thought of it as a kid's book. I basically just wrote a book that I wanted to read and it ended up being this, <laughs> this book. But I've been, I, you know, I like to draw and, and paint and make things and I've always kind of been working on, on various books and uh, it just sort of, Came together, coalesced in the recent years, and so you and you've been. Have you always been illustrating? You've been drawing since you were a kid. Since I was a little kid, yes. And then, sort of, ten or fifteen years ago, I sort of started doing it more serious. Not serious. Not, I, the, the hope is to never take yourself seriously, as you can tell <laughs> by wearing a giant set of pajamas. But yeah, we're kind of for a while. I love it. Yeah, now, I, people, you posted it on Instagram. I just want to bring it up real quick. Some fans who've gotten tattoos of Rumple. Oh my which god! Is yeah, incredible. Right? Yeah, isn't that amazing? I hope they like the book because it's. 
hasn't come. It comes out tomorrow, and, but I, I think they will. And they already yeah. got tattoos. I gotta ask. Um, you, that's not the first tattoos of your drawings, right? People kind of get they, your drawings they, tattooed right. a lot. Yeah, yeah, they do actually. I'm very honored, and it's like the greatest compliment I could receive to have someone want me around permanently. Most people try to get me out of a room within three minutes of hearing me talk. <laughs> so the fact that people are willing to 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 put me on their arm or their their back for life is is very touching. It's very touching. Yeah. But you again, you are doing so much. You also dabble in magic? I do do some magic. Yeah, that's actually how I, that was my first profession. I grew up in Las Vegas and I was like a childhood magician and I would rent, uh, I would like do, I would hire myself out and do like bar mitzvahs and stuff. Uh-huh. And uh, not very popular. <laughs> I was gonna say, yeah, you I had a lot of, did you not, also have a trash friend? I had a lot of imaginary <laughs> friends. I had, exactly, there's, there's a lot of similarities between me and Rumpel, but uh, yeah. <laughs> And now we're here today with you on AIM? Yeah, I'm, yeah I, I, I am also a trash person. person. <laughs> oh, so you're just making another trash Did you have an imaginary friend. friend growing up? Uh, I did not have any imaginary friends yeah. growing up. But uh, like I said, there is a lot of trash going on. Okay. I do want to ask, ask you this. Do you have a go-to trick? Do you still do it? I, I do still do it. I, I do, yeah, you know, it's tough with these hands. I don't have a go-to trick. <laughs> I, I know. You I don't have to perform. I, I, I wish I, I thought, I, I can do a sword through a neck pretty easily. Really? But we need a sword. Who's got yeah, a, let's not, anyone have a sword? No, we and don't also need, I need a no, willing volunteer. We don't need that, we don't need that. But you, so you can still do it. You've still I got, still do, oh, you've yeah, still yeah, got yeah, it. Yeah, I love it, you know, yeah. That's incredible. Also season 14. Oh yeah. All right, what is it like to play a character for that long? You know, it's. I feel so lucky that it's crazy to get to like, I, it's hard to explain because I, I I never really studied acting, so I don't I. It, it's it's a great yeah to play a character for that long. He becomes sort of part of you, and you luckily get to become part of him. And I really admire the character that I get to play, and I'm just honored to get to do it. That's incredible. So you you didn't study acting. It was more of a magic illustrating, hanging out by yourself. I actually I I went to film school, and uh -huh. I, I I love directing, and that was sort of my focus. I learned that to be like the best magic trick of all. From age five to twelve, I was really into magic, and then at twelve, I was like, oh my gosh, filmmaking is the ultimate magic. You get to create these alternate realities and sort of trick people into believing in magic. Mm -hmm. And so I pursued that pretty full on for 10 years and then somehow ended up on Criminal Minds. That's incredible. Yeah. And now you are uh, literally a mascot. All right, we do oh. want to play a quick game with oh, you before excited. we let you go, all right? So we have a quiz here at yes. BuzzFeed and it's from one of our community masterminds yeah. and it's so brilliant. It's called, Can You Guess the Season of Criminal Minds Based on Spencer <laughs> Reed's Hair? Okay, are you ready for this? I'm ready, I'm ready. All right, we're just gonna, it's oh gonna be, gosh. you're gonna be surrounded by your faces. Okay. Here they oh, go. Right, here's the first wait, where one. Do I look? Do I look here? Yeah. Uh, season, I know this season, this is the year I broke my knee dancing. That's season five. Nailed it! Is it right? Yes! Yeah! Oh my on. gosh. Hang on, how'd you break your knee dancing? I like to go 100% in everything I do. <laughs> and I was, at, I was doing a dance competition with, and long story short, I broke my knee. I needed three knee surgeries. I was told I might never walk without a cane. What? But guess what? Look at you. I'm back. Alive and kicking. Alive and kicking. Beautiful. Hey, cool tattoos, man. Thank you very much. Whoa. I'm gonna get a rumple. Please do! After no, this. We'll, we'll I'll do, do it, it myself. We can go we'll do it in the back room. Perfect, no problem. Yeah, yeah. I, got a, I got a homemade kit. No <laughs> Okay. All right, here's number two. You ready? Yes. Oh my gosh. That's tough. Okay. The one thing I know about this is I'm very pensive in that photo. <laughs> that tells me that I'm a very serious actor, uh -huh, uh -huh. which means that it is most likely I want to go with season nine. Dang, ten. Ten. Season ten. Ten. You were so close. You're so close. Jennifer Love Hewitt was in that year, though. I remember because she, if you could cut wider, you would see her right here. Okay. okay. She's taller than that. Okay. She was right there. Yeah. I like you. You do look very pensive. All right, next very one. Pensive. Here we go. Here we go. Dang it. Oh boy. Smelled something real bad in that shot. <laughs> 
But as you can see, I'm sitting right by a garbage can. I'm gonna go with, let's see. You know, I can tell the seasons. I always, I always do like a weird indie film during every hiatus from Criminal Minds. Okay. So my haircuts are typically dictated by what film I'm doing that summer. Uh -huh. This was right after, I think a film called 68, let me think. That's season seven. That's season seven? Did you really? Yes, my man! That's crazy. You're really nice. Did. did I really get that? Uh, you did, no. I, we wouldn't lie to you, all right? I'm not an April Fool's guy. I'm not, okay. I'm not lying. I'm not lying. All right, next one. And seriously, you've gotten so many haircuts, hey, too. thanks. Oh, this is the best. Um, that was when Steve Buscemi was on our show for a short period of time. Uh, I'm joking, that's me. Um, <laughs> that, I look like an earthworm with hair. I look like, <laughs> you, basically... You mean way too hard oh, yeah. on yourself. You no, look very handsome I'm very in this th photo. No, thank you. That was, uh, see, I wanted the character to develop. Part of the honors, I was a little nervous when you asked me this question earlier. I really got, can we start the interview over right Yeah, now? yeah, no it's problem. Live, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Action! <laughs> I was, I, I wanted, the beauty of playing a character for so long is you get to, in TV you often get to see characters develop mm -hmm. and to be able to take him from uh, an earthworm with hair mm -hmm. to a green guy on the AM2. <laughs> Yeah, but that was season two. That was season yeah, two. Yeah. Nailed it. I have your glasses too, by the last way. Last one. Yeah. I was gonna say that's why. I'm, that's probably why I thought you were looking so handsome. Hey, it's, uh, I'm just like saying that glasses. Great on you, man. All right, last one. You yes. ready? Yeah. Here we go. Oh my gosh. Whew. Dreamboat. I don't Dreamboat. know about that. I don't know. Let me think. That would be um, season six. Are you nailed it. Me? Nailed it. Come on. Yeah. Give it up. That's Dreamboat. Clap it up. Clap it up. Does that mean I'm incredibly vain? No. My I should not have been that good at that No, test. but you got I you yeah. got one wrong. And I, I knew you. I know thank you, you I know yes. you threw it. You so, threw yeah. it so you didn't look so I vain. I threw it. I don't want to look vain. I don't Yeah, thank you. Congratulations on the book. <laughs> I'm so hug, excited. Man. Give me a hug. Thank you for Give having us, man. Can I can I like I want to try I, that of on? Of course in a second. you can. It's gonna be hard with your glasses, but no, yeah. we're gonna do it. Yeah. Matthew, thank you so much for joining thank us. You Get for your copy of Rumble Buttercup up now. I'm sitting down with one of the co-founders of Very Smart Brothers. Put it on. Put it on. Here it goes. Here we go. Here it goes. I hope you like lice. Oh, I have lice. Nice. Oh, I feel really good. Hey, you look good. I can breathe into this. Yeah, yeah I love this. This, this is, is great. amazing. Here's a quote from Damon Young's interview with the New York Times. So much of the national dialogue about race deals with either terrible trauma or black excellence. I was more interested in the space between because that's where. I exist. I live there too. Damon Young, co-founder of Very Smart Brothers and author of What Doesn't Kill You Makes You Blacker, a memoir and essays, joins me now. Good morning. Oh, can you uh, hear me, Damon? I can't hear you. Yeah, you, yeah I can hear you fine. Uh -huh. There we go. Good. I got you, friend. Okay, so first of all, congratulations. Your first book, What Doesn't Kill You Makes You Blacker, was just published. There's been just such wonderful attention around it. How are you feeling? Um, I feel like um, people keep asking me if I'm excited mm -hmm. and I'm waiting for excited to get here. I'm okay. more anxious and nervous, like excited is at a rest stop taking a nap um, right now. Mm -hmm. Like I'm waiting for excited to hurry up and get here because it's not here yet. I'm still anxious. I'm still nervous as hell right now yeah. <laughs> about this whole process. I get that. I mean, you're really revealing so much about yourself and, and your past, and you know, you're know, you putting it in the hands of strangers, literally. That can be challenging. Yeah, I mean, people are going to read some of my deepest and darkest anxieties, self-consciousnesses and neuroses, and these are things that I haven't, you know, some of these things I haven't admitted to my wife, to my friends, my family, and so now it's all out there. It, it almost feels like this whole process is like a, I'm approaching a haunted house and it's a house that has a pot of gold inside of it. 
And I know that if I could spend the entire day or the entire night in that haunted house, I could the pot of gold, but it's still a haunted house. <laughs> so I still have to, I still had to spend a night in there. Yeah, couldn't agree more. As someone who's working on a memoir myself, I know the feeling. Um, well, I think this is so insightful. You reference um, the space between pure joy and pure suffering, and, and that that uh, contradiction in terms of black uh, trauma and black excellence. Um, what did you want to highlight about your life experience? Well, I just what, what I basically want to do is um, just draw light to some of the various, you know performances that 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 sprung from these neuroses and self-consciousnesses and also when you're a young kid going through some of these things you it could be a little claustrophobic when you're thinking that i'm the only one experiencing this i'm the only one having these thoughts i'm the only one having these doubts and so i just wanted to write a book that dealt with that in a somewhat humorous and then somewhat dark manner sometimes and basically just let people who are going through these sorts of things also know that they're not alone. Mm. Um, as a co-founder of Very Smart Brothers, I wanted to ask you, you know, what did you think was missing from online culture sites that you wanted to see? Your site gets so much right all the time. Uh, me? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I was missing. <laughs> I was missing and I needed to insert some of myself. <laughs> <laughs> fair, fair, fair. Um, well, you also dedicate a section of your book to your daughter, Zoe. Um, and so I wanted to ask yeah. you, what's something you're looking forward to teaching her about Black culture, either just in person or via the book itself? Um, I mean, I'm, I'm looking forward to teaching her how to play spades. Um, I know that's not really, <laughs> you know, white people can play spades too. Spades you know, is fucking all, terrifying. All, all spades, all spades matter. But um, <laughs> but yeah, I'm, I'm teaching her. I want to teach her how to play that. I, but seriously, I want to. I don't know. Just let her know that she can be any and everything she wants to be, and that in order to do that, she doesn't have to stamp out or minimize any of her identity, any of her blackness, any of her. You know, she's a she's a young girl. Any of that. So she doesn't have to stamp out herself in order to be, in order to reach her potential. Absolutely. Well, here's a tweet from NB NPR. Damon Young says it took years for doctors to diagnose his mother, a longtime smoker, with lung cancer. He asked, would they have taken her pain more seriously if she wasn't a black woman? And unfortunately, uh, you know, we've seen this in reporting so often that black women's pain isn't taken seriously in the medical community. So why was it important for you to, to open up, you know, your story about this part of your life? Well, I mean, because it's so, because it is so ubiquitous, because, you know, the, um, you know, the, the pain that um, black people, but black women specifically um, go through, you know, doesn't register, you know, isn't treated as seriously as the pain that white people, white women specifically go through. And my mom puts a very human, very personal, very visceral face on that entire thing. And, you know, I just... And again, as I said in a quote, I wonder if she was a white woman, if, you know, if she would have been treated differently, if she would have been treated with more care, if um, her pain would have been taken more seriously. And we have studies, you know, that you could Google that will show that even today in 2019, there are still doctors who believe that black people have a supernatural tolerance for pain. Yeah. And you think about that, think about my mom and even looking at Serena Williams. Who almost died in child after childbirth because whoever in the maternity ward wasn't giving her uh, wasn't taking her concern seriously, and this is Serena Williams, 
Yeah. With all the power and all the money and all the status in the world. So what about my mom and other women like my mom? Absolutely. Um, well, one last question. Um, something you detail in the book is that you still live in the wonderful city of Pittsburgh. Um, and I thought it was so cool for you to be able to also talk about, you know, making it as a writer, how we actually afford to do our work. So why was staying in Pittsburgh um, an important part for the progress in your career? Well, I mean, to, to be perfectly blunt, Pittsburgh is a um, relatively cheap city. And I was able to afford living as a freelancer living on unemployment and still being able to pay certain bills, um, still be able to do certain things in a way that maybe I wouldn't have been able to in DC or New York or, you know, any, you know, city on the East coast or mid Atlantic or whatever. And so that economic insecurity, which has been a constant threat throughout my life has impacted decisions, has even impacted where I am right now. Um, and so, yes, part of me staying in Pittsburgh is because it's 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 basically this Wakanda for white people, and I feel like Pittsburgh needs people to actually tell the truth about it. So there's that, but then there's also just you know going back uh, five ten years, I stayed because I had to, and now I'm here because I want to be. Now you're here because you want to be. Well, that's great to hear, uh, Damon. Thanks for joining us this morning, and congratulations on the book. Oh, thank you. Thanks for having me. Of course. What Doesn't Kill You Makes You Blacker is available everywhere books are sold. It's so wonderful. And Damon's just been doing great writing for some time now. Get into that. All right, up next, Isaac and I are going to read a few more of your tweets. Okay. He had me dying with white Wakanda. That was really funny. That was very, very. <laughs> like, I was like, I can't even, because I don't want to get him off track, but I was going to start laughing. Okay, friends. Isaac and I have made it to the end mm. of our one-hour show on April Fool's. We have not been pranked yet. yet. Don't do it. Don't do it. All of you. I want to I wanna just be, be very clear. We had a lot of joy. Oh, yeah. Look at all the fun. joy we had I on the show. I love to laugh. We I love to laugh. Love to laugh. I love to laugh. Just don't like to be lied to. <laughs> just don't like, you know, to get something dumped on my head. We were complaining about the horrors of April Fool's Day. And you Kelly, up you that. tweeted, <laughs> a couple of years ago, my ex-best friend, who's already estranged from me by that point, randomly texted me a photo of a positive pregnancy test. It was obviously fake, but she sent me several texts over several hours trying to convince me otherwise. It was ridiculous. Lines not joking. Lines I don't not even joking. Understand what was the joke? That's the thing. It's like it's like oh, I think it's funny because I'm tricking you, and also to be doing it to a best friend that you're maybe estranged from. What if you got on the phone? What if it was April Nice Day? Listen, girl, you, I just don't understand what's that. Like your uterus is the joke. I don't understand. <laughs> we just got to get through this day. Um, Sylvia had some intel on the honeydew melon situation. Let's get into this. Vendors and grocers push honeydew and cantaloupe too soon ahead of season. That hard, bitter melon will ruin you. But the two weeks of season, oh, uh, honeydew and mm -hmm. cantaloupe are delish. I love cantaloupe. So maybe that's it. Maybe, maybe it's you had it like, at the right time. You just got to get it at the right time. And the window for when that right time is, is very, very small. I yeah. can see that working. Um, one of our producers definitely was saying kind of like it's, it's just when it's unripe is when there's a Ugh. problem. Yeah. I also just feel like the contrast between cantaloupe and mm -hmm. honeydew is so, because cantaloupe is just like so sweet and everything that anything else with it is lit. Now I'm starting to worry maybe I had cantaloupe. On the topic of the seemingly <laughs> endless of 2020 <laughs> candidates, Melissa had this to say, Bill Clinton didn't jump into the campaign Ugh. until October, the year before that presidential election. So who knows what spoiler candidate might be out there. Okay, that's, I can see that. 
I could see there's going to be somebody that we don't even know about. October? It was a different time. I will say that. The nine, you know. It was a long. It wasn't, wasn't it beautiful back then? People didn't start presidential elections I before just, the year. <laughs> it was beautiful At this point, times. the only person I want to hear from, and just because I'm interested, is Stacey Abrams. I'm, yep. just, I'm genuinely fascinated about her idea of her career moving forward, just because she's the one to watch. But everybody else. Tap Y'all hoes might have to sit this one out. Tap the brakes. <laughs> Tap the brakes. You're just late. You're just late. This ain't a clown car. It's an election cycle, goddammit. Anyway, thank you to all of our guests. <laughs> Azeem Qureshi, George M. Johnson, Paul McLeod, Jason McHenry, Matthew Gray Goobler, and Damon Young. We made it. He was right? an absolute oh delight. God. Please don't glitter bomb anybody today. Oh, don't do drink anybody. Maybe just take some time to be nice to somebody. We will be back here tomorrow morning at 10 a.m. Have a great rest of your day. Go read a fucking book. Don't trust <laughs> nobody. <laughs>